0: This year has seen the very foundations of the global economy shudder and creak. In a world in flux, the agile nature of transnational organized crime has allowed it to adapt swiftly, an adaptability that we've seen in East and Southern Africa, where discoveries of illicit heroin shipments reveal possible links to Afghan methamphetamine markets. In South Africa, tackling a surge in illegal gold mining proves difficult amid deteriorating law enforcement capacity, endemic corruption, and community support for illegal miners. You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This week, we're in East and Southern Africa. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Methamphetamine production in Afghanistan has been on the rise in recent years. Although domestic consumption has grown in the Central Asian country, there is still an oversupply of meth in the Afghan market. Ongoing research by the GI suggests that at least some of this excess may be headed to countries in East and Southern Africa.
1: If we look back to a couple of seizures that occurred off the coast of Central and Northern Mozambique in around December 2019, we saw for perhaps the first time seizures of dows crewed by Pakistani and Iranian crews, but dows that normally would have contained only heroin but in these cases contained both heroin and crystal methamphetamine.
0: Jason Eli is a senior expert with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.
1: There is right now an international combined maritime force that operates in the uh, northwestern part of the Indian Ocean. December last year and then uh, months ago this year, two quite significant seizures of methamphetamine that has originated from the Makran coast of Pakistan and was headed down towards Eastern and Southern coast of Africa. So these are relatively new. If we look historically over the years preceding these seizures, we have not seen seizures anything like this. We've not seen seizures that have combined both heroin and methamphetamine, nor have we seen seizures of high volumes of meth off the coast of Eastern and Southern Africa until just the last year or so.
0: Jason, what is the route that this meth is traveling to get to Eastern and Southern Africa?
1: This is where we're getting more into speculation because there's not enough research evidence to say for certain that we're connecting the origin point A in Afghanistan with the destination point C in, for example, Southern Africa. However, we do have a large amount of circumstantial evidence that leads us to believe that this is at least one of the routes for Afghan meth making its way to a market in Southern Africa. And that is the the seizures of meth and heroin that have occurred in the Indian Ocean, particularly off the coast of Eastern Africa, that we know originates from Afghanistan and is processed also in parts of Pakistan that largely follows traditional heroin routes out of the Makran coast of Pakistan, occasionally off of the Iranian coast as well, but more recently and in higher volume from the Pakistani Makran coast area, traveling traditional routes through the Indian Ocean and down the eastern and southern coast of of Africa in the same way that the heroin travels. So we're looking at uh, disembarkation in places like Zanzibar in Tanzania. We're looking at also northern Mozambique and down around the uh, Pemba area even for common routes.
0: Is there significant enough demand for meth in Africa or is it a transit point for this meth moving on further from the continent?
1: Researchers within Africa have some idea in several of these places of what the drug demand is. I think our knowledge of it is still quite low. Researchers and security experts and others outside of the continent, when they look at Africa, I don't think they understand the volume of demand for some of these illicit substances. If we look at methamphetamine in particular, you often hear of people talking about, of course, Eastern and Southeast Asia as a primary point of production and consumption. You hear about uh, Mexico and markets into the US as primary points of production and consumption. But you don't really ever hear of South Africa, for example, as a primary consumption point. And the volume of methamphetamine consumption in South Africa is extraordinary, and I would argue among the highest levels of consumption in the world, if we're talking about a market perspective. It's a market that's developed over the last 20 years. Methamphetamine is the single most common substance consumed in several provinces of the country. And it's a market that has, in recent years, infiltrated neighboring Botswana, of course, Mozambique, Iswatini, Lesotho, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi. We're seeing meth use move quite uh, quickly from the coast and, and up into the inland areas of the country. So I think we underrepresent the demands in this area and I think that is to our detriment.
0: What impact might this global oversupply of Afghan meth have on a country like South Africa?
1: We're theorizing an oversupply right now. It's likely, I want to say that, but if we talk to people who use meth In many of the southern and eastern African countries, if we talk to the dealers, which we've done, who are the ones who sell the meth, and we ask them about the differences between this so-called Afghan or Pakistani meth and meth that comes from other sources, there are a few things that they say. The first thing they say is that the quality is quite variable. You can get some meth from this supply that is quite high quality. Their perception is it's quite pure and it's good stuff to use, but you can also get some meth that is quite low quality. It's filled with impurities and is quite a different product to smoke, which is the most common means of use in the area. The second difference is the adulteration of the product. There's methamphetamine that's locally produced in South Africa. In a report that's coming out shortly, we're going to talk about a meth flow that comes in from Nigeria as well that's feeding southern Africa. And these meth flows are viewed by users as being adulterated products. That means that there's been a substance added to it to create a higher volume. Sometimes the substance is quite benign, a food product of some kind, or sometimes the substance is something a bit more dangerous. And the newness of the market means that people haven't really got the recipe down 100% yet. We're not talking about a structured industry of production. We're talking about a production that is occurring in quite a wide geographic area by a large number of different people. So it's inevitable that you're going to have different recipes or different approaches to the production of this product in these areas until such time as the cooks get better at what they're doing.
0: And Jason, how has the coronavirus pandemic and the ensuing restrictions like curfews and lockdowns impacted on this transnational trade of Afghan meth?
1: We know that the gangs control uh, most of the meth trade that goes on in South Africa, less so in neighbouring countries. It would be an interesting point to examine whether this new flow has an impact on the status quo, as it were, in how meth distribution territory is allocated across the gangs. I think it's fair to say at this time that we're not sure, but apart from the fact that we know that if you're talking about meth markets in South Africa, certainly there's a strong component of gang control therein. It's possible, therefore, that this will simply contribute to what has been the status quo for many years. I think it's fair to say that there's been really little to no impact on the volume of illicit drugs that have been moving to African markets. We've seen some areas where prices have gone up, particularly during the lockdown phase. Part of that price increase was gangs or suppliers using the excuse of a lockdown and the fear of a lockdown to make more money off of the products that they had. The price increases didn't last very long, only a few weeks. And generally across the board, we've seen a decrease in the price for all drugs in South Africa, for example. If we look at prices from before COVID lockdown period to the prices leading up to even last month, we've seen a general trend downwards in all drugs, including methamphetamine. Stories about COVID and COVID lockdowns and borders being closed and people stopping using some kinds of drugs, I think are just that right now. It doesn't hold up to the evidence that we have on the ground at this point in time.
0: What do you think is the most sensible way to address Afghanistan's role as a source country for this transnational trade of meth? Let's start with the fact that the United States bombed meth labs in 2019. What's your take on a militarized approach?
1: I would say that we only need to look at many other examples over the last 30, 40, 50 years of militarized or heavily securitized approaches to illicit drug markets to determine whether or not They've been successful, and I think the answer to that is no. We've had global strategy against drugs and a global plan against drugs that was founded in 1998 through the Commission on Narcotics Drugs, and the approach was a 10-year plan to try and impact and decrease the volume of drugs and drug use around the world. In the time since that plan was initiated, it's been extended twice, most recently in March of last year. So we've had over 30 years of this plan, and in that period, drug markets have soared. Use has increased around the world significantly. Methamphetamine production and use has increased and expanded across the world. Synthetic cannabinoids and other synthetic drugs have increased their reach across the world, and yet in that period, we've imprisoned hundreds of thousands of people. Labs have been bombed. Fields have been sprayed. So I think if we're looking at law enforcement responses, the first thing we have to recognize is that the approaches that we've been taking aren't working.
0: What are some of the reasons this response isn't working?
1: Part of the reason for that is that we're focusing in many places on the wrong side of the market. Arresting people who are using or people who possess a very small amount of the drug is not going to impact on the overall supply characteristics or market characteristics, number one. So putting these people in prison, giving them a criminal record is only harming these individuals. It's not helping society as a whole move towards a more secure, and I'll use the language of the prohibitionist, a drug-free society. Secondly, we have to recognize that there's never going to be a drug-free society. There never has been in the past, and there never will be in the future. There will always be some level of use. The third thing we need to recognize, and it's something that's often overlooked, is this huge elephant in the room, which is corruption. Yes, we can talk about government corruption, yes, we can talk about corruption on varying levels, but we have to recognize that there's a large amount of corruption in many law enforcement bodies around the world. This has been found in in research reports and constitutional commissions that have been undertaken by the countries themselves. You have a constitutional commission that occurred in Mauritius a couple of years ago one of the principal findings was that the drug enforcement body of the police and customs had to be disbanded because of corruption. I think every South African and every Zambian and every Zimbabwean and Mozambican would be able to come up with examples of police corruption around drugs and drug use in their own countries. There was recently in South Africa findings against police at the major airport in Johannesburg being corrupt around their seizure of narcotic products. So corruption is one of the major features that facilitates both the embeddedness of drug markets in communities, emboldens the resilience of drug markets in these areas, and enables the sustainability of drug markets in these areas. If we can't tackle corruption, then all of the other approaches alone will just be insignificant.
0: That was Jason Eli, a senior expert with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The beauty of the African continent shines bright in its natural resources. One of the most coveted is gold. The gold price hit record highs this year, and analysts predict it may continue to soar in a post-pandemic world economy. Illegal gold mining in South Africa is also trending upward, and has been for the past decade. As large mining operations have abandoned their shafts, informal miners from South Africa and neighboring countries, referred to as zamazamas, have arrived to dig for leftover gold. The legal framework that governs mining in South Africa is the Mineral and Petroleum Resources Development
2: Act. We look at illegal mining as invasive illegal mining or invasive type of mining with no community approval and is run by cartels and kingpins and usually the syndicates employ illegal immigrants. Khotatso is the founding director of Imbogodo Mining Services. Then we move on to artisanal mining. Artisanal mining is typically individuals or small groups of people who mine with the community approval and are usually community members in that area. Then we also have customary mining, which is more based on traditional informal agreements where there is a traditional community that has a chief in place or a headman in place
0: But additional legislation like the National Environmental Management Act, Precious Minerals Act, and Trespassing Act come together to form a legal environment that complicates the path towards legalization for small-scale miners.
3: What you find is that most illegal miners are, for example, charged with things such as illegal possession of precious metals or for trespassing or for immigration violations. And that's part of the problem, that's part of the challenge that authorities have in dealing with the water problem.
0: So what's it like working underground as an illegal gold miner, a Zama Zama? Here's Ed Stoddard, a Johannesburg-based journalist.
3: For one thing, your typical illegal miner won't have all the protective equipment that formal miners have for a start, such as helmets and emergency oxygen tanks and that kind of thing. They can spend weeks or months underground, so they will have flashlights and batteries, but they will also have food, water, tobacco, alcohol, drugs, and that kind of thing. The conditions are, are cramped, and depending on the depth, they can be quite hot. And, you know, they will either hack at the ore with pickaxes or get access to operational mines where the ore has been blasted. Then they'll take the gold-bearing rocks, and this is, again, hot, arduous work, and scrape it over a metal plate wrapped in a carpet. That gold-bearing material gets caught in the carpet, which is then washed out in a bucket of water. Mercury is added to the mix, and so you may get a nugget that is perhaps 50 60% gold. But of course, there are many dangers. You know, rockfalls are one. People can plummet down the shafts in some places in the dark. There are also explosions from methane and things like that because the illegal miners are down there cooking and smoking marijuana and smoking cigarettes and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's dark, dangerous uh, work.
0: After it's extracted, where does this gold end up?
3: Azawazama uh, will take his haul above ground or send it up with a runner. It is then sold to a middleman who might then complete the processing at an illicit smelter. So that might take it from 60-70% purity to over 90% or more. It may then be taken to a second-hand jeweler, and it would pass through a couple of these shops to, among other things, to generate a paper trail for illegal VAT claims. Or it may get smuggled by plane or ship straight out of the country with collusion from customs officials. When that happens, the understanding is that much of it winds up in Dubai, India, or China. In that sense, too, it's also following other routes of illicit commodities out of Africa, too.
0: So would you say, then, that there is a distinct relationship between these zamazamas and organized criminal networks operating from South Africa?
3: Collusion and corruption are rife in South Africa. Corruption especially became rampant under former President Jacob Zuma, who stepped down in early 2018. The current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is trying to rectify this, but but the problem remains very widespread. Police are often turning a blind eye to ZAMA activities, which can occur almost literally almost beneath their feet in some cases. And in terms of customs officials, that is the, the responsibility both of the Revenue Service here, but also of the Department of Home Affairs. It's completely riddled with corruption, which is also why there are a lot of illegal immigrants in South Africa anyway. And how are they getting into the country? Well, they're obviously getting in through collusion with border officials and customs officials. So in the same way, you can see the gold is getting out. But the problem also plays itself out in the fact that when mine security, for example, affects an arrest and arrests Azama for trespassing or some violation like that, and they take them to the police station, they'll complain that the dockets get lost or the guy simply bribes his way out and the next week he's underground again.
0: Can you explain how mining companies are protecting themselves from this activity and the extent to which they're having to act as law enforcers?
3: I went down a Sabanya gold mine about three and a half years ago. You had to use a thumbprint to get access at one point, and it's just one person can go through there, and that's being guarded. The problem for the mining companies, you might think that something like that would prevent illegal miners from getting underground. But the problem with them is collusion from employees. And this is how it works. Employee might collude, but it might be because their family has been threatened or something like that. They'll say, we know where your wife works. We we know what school your kids go to. But the other thing is, too, they have these armed patrols. And in some cases, it's where the mining companies have, have had disused operations, but they're still kind of responsible for the property. While
0: informal mining is a persistent problem for mining companies, It does have the potential to act as a form of social development and poverty alleviation for some
2: communities. Here's Kotadzong Lengaitwa again. Whether we like it or not, informal mining or artisanal mining, as we like to call it, feeds the people on the ground. And because of this, it can be used as a poverty alleviating mechanism. But the problem with this is it needs structural support and it needs a legal framework in which the grassroots level can expand and be empowered. In order to do this, we need to change it from being a poverty trap run by kingpins to more poverty alleviation and it needs to be less about exploitation and more about ownership. In your opinion,
0: what kind of approach should be taken when it comes to law enforcement aimed at curbing illegal
2: mining? I strongly believe that the only way in order to counteract is to create a legal avenue for artisanal miners. Because when you go down on the grassroots level, you will find that the miners do want to become legal. And we need to do this by introducing policy that is informed by what's going on on grassroots level and uses the information that we have at the grassroots level. And what information is this? We know the systems and processes that they use. And this I'm talking now about artisanal mining and customary mining. In the sake of illegal mining, we need a secondary approach. A secondary approach means that in parallel to formalization, we need to be able to curb the corruption and we need to be able to curb the illegal mining that is happening. And we know, of
0: course, that mining can never be removed from South Africa's racialized past and politics around land and minerals, inequality and wealth. How then is illegal mining
2: perceived in rural communities? In rural communities it is typically seen as an obligation for them to use the minerals of the land. It is their land. You often find they say um, tu in Zulu, which means this is our land, and they have a dispossession of that they should be able to mine simply because they live there. And because of this, this alludes to the land debate of saying, does the land really belong to the people? Because whether or not we like it, mining must exist within a legal framework. And because of this, the land issue does come about. And because of this, the minerals issue does come about. And who really gives permission in order for it to mine? The second aspect is that Large-scale mining can play its role in artisanal mining because we see that if we have examples where mining companies can work together with small-scale mining companies, then we can have a more holistic approach. What role does large-scale mining have to play in all of this? Even though they are vying for the same commodity, there are many areas where large-scale mines can afford or do have areas where artisanal miners can be able to mine. So it needs to be a collaborative effort. And this is what artisanal miners on the ground are calling for. They are calling for help. They're saying, we want to do this, we want to be legal. And how can we do this legally with the help of all stakeholders that we can engage with?
0: And what are some of the biggest obstacles standing in the way of
2: these artisanal miners becoming legal? One of the biggest aspects that is a problem is that the artisanal miners themselves are typically low level of education. So the bureaucratic process of applying for a permit is something that they do not know how to do simply because of their level of education. Also because of that they live in poverty and it's a poverty-driven activity you often find that they are unable to pay the exorbitant costs of permitting or of traveling to go to regional areas. Another problem is that the DMRE, which is the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, has a problem with capacity because in some areas you'll find that there's only one person who's dealing with small-scale mining within an entire province. And this now is a problem of capacity and that there's not enough people who have access to the DMRE within the artisanal small-scale mining space. Another big problem is access to markets. Artisanal miners are often paid less than 50% of market value for their minerals or for the ore in which they sell to these buyers. And this is simply because they are working on the confines of the black market and they do not have a voice in order to say we deserve more.
0: COVID-19 has also had a large impact on the informal mining sector. Ed Stoddard offers an explanation as to why activity has increased.
3: It may have curbed some activity, but because the police were distracted, the perception is that it actually allowed some illegal mining operations to flourish and ramp up their game, ironically, under the cover of lockdown.
0: And Khotazo Nkhlingetwa highlights how continued mining during a pandemic comes with continued risks.
2: I actually found that there are three main aspects of impact that happened during the hard lockdown in South Africa. The first aspect is the social aspect, and given that COVID-19 is transmitted from person to person in small spaces, you must understand that artisanal mining is done by group work and in small spaces. So given that they need to social distance, they essentially can't work together in those groups and those groups give a social fiber, they give a togetherness and a belonging to the community, especially in traditional mining communities. The second aspect was obviously health and health is understandable because of this group work in these small spaces, it's easy to transmit COVID-19 and because of this, it's a very high health risk. So you found that the the transmission was quite higher when they did force to go into those mining areas because they needed something to eat because there was nothing on the table. And the last but definitely not least was the economic aspect where the drop in commodity prices already with the below market prices they get, they don't make enough. But with the drop in the commodity prices, this means that they got less money on their table. And because of the lack of restriction, this also meant that they couldn't actually go to the working place. They couldn't actually go work because they didn't have a permit to do so. And lastly, it's the loss of life, which is undeniable, what an effect that can have, especially to rural communities in which this artisanal mining is typically the most accessible or the most easiest thing to do in areas, for example, like Mpumalanga where this coal or Barberton with this gold. So the loss of life really affects the providers and how they provide to their family. That was Khotaz
0: Onklenge, founding director of Mbogodo Mining Services, and Ed Stoddard, a Johannesburg-based journalist. Methamphetamine use and illicit gold mining are on the rise in East and Southern Africa, and the pandemic has not brought either industry to a halt. Though there is still more research to be done, strong evidence suggests that the oversupply of Afghan meth is being trafficked to countries in East and Southern Africa via Indian Ocean routes. Abating production and consumption will not be as easy as raising fields, convicting criminals or bombing labs. It will require targeted campaigns towards rooting out corruption in law enforcement bodies throughout the continent and indeed the world and illicit gold mining in South Africa that currently operates in a grey area, offers real potential for rural communities if regulated correctly. The good news is that South Africa is drawing up new policies for small-scale mining. But the problem must be addressed quickly, as financial pressure on families amid the COVID-19 pandemic and the value of gold on the market are on the rise. That concludes this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thank you to our guests, Jason Eli, Son Llangetwa, and Ed Stoddard. For more on this episode, visit www.globalinitiative.net and take a look at the Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in Eastern and Southern Africa, Risk Bulletin No. 12. You can also listen to last week's podcast on security sector reform and organized crime in Libya, as well as other podcasts from the Global Initiative. Please take the time to leave a review, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. When you hear from us again in two weeks, we'll be in North Africa. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindy Mtongana. Thanks for listening.